70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Hello, my name is Bernd Seiser. Seit 1974 Hello, my name is Bernd Seiser. I've been listening to shortwave radio since 1974 and to KBS World Radio's German service from its day one, May 1st, 1981. I have also been serving as an official monitor since 2003. Congratulations on the 70th anniversary, and I hope to catch the German broadcast on 3955 kHz for many years to come. I will look forward to keeping myself updated with useful information about Korea through the channel. My favorite program is Magazine K. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the two hosts of the show. Once again, happy 70th birthday. This has been Bernd Seiser from Ottenau, Germany. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Hello, it's Monday the 13th of November and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jawon. The government has decided against raising the 52-hour maximum work week, but flexibility in some industries and occupations is said to be introduced. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. More and more cases of bedbugs are being reported around Korea, raising concerns of a wider outbreak. We talked to a bedbug expert for our in-depth today to find out what can be done to tackle it. Coming up for Monday's Sports Roundup, we have the latest on the Korean series with the LG Twins on the verge of being crowned champions for the first time in 29 years. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. The government has backed down from its plan to raise the maximum work week from 52 to 69 hours but it's still seeking flexibility for some industries and occupations. This comes on the back of a survey of workers, business owners and citizens, and the Labour Ministry said it will devise a new plan through a Labour-Business-Government dialogue. For this and other major headlines of the day, we have in the studio with us a Deputy Editor-in-Chief of KBS World's English News Service, Kim In-young, In-young hello. Hello, Tamil. So back in March, the government said it would implement a maximum 69-hour workweek policy by calculating overtime monthly, quarterly, biannually or annually instead of simply weekly. This was met with intense backlash, especially from young workers, after which the government backed down and said it would devise new measures following a detailed survey. The Labour Ministry announced the results of the survey on Monday today. Can you tell us more? 
Sure. The government conducted door-to-door interviews with 6,030 people over a three-month period starting in June, including more than 3,800 workers, almost 1,000 business owners, and about 1,200 citizens. The results found that 48.2% of the public responded that the 52-hour system was helpful in resolving long working hours, while 85.5% of business owners said they never experienced any difficulties with the current system. But the survey also revealed that the ratio of people who agreed with expanding the overtime cap was 10 percentage points higher than those who disapproved in all three groups. So on the back of this then, what did the government decide to do? According to Labour Minister Lee Jung-sik, the government will fully accept the results of the survey and maintain the 52-hour work week, but still seek flexibility for some industries and occupations. Do we know which industries and occupations will be affected? Well, respondents of the survey considered manufacturing and construction as industries that needed to be more flexible with overtime, while such occupations included jobs in production, health and research. The ministry intends to devise a detailed plan through a labour-business-government dialogue based on the survey results. And what's been the reaction from labour groups to this announcement? The Federation of Korean Trade Unions, one of the nation's two major umbrella unions, said on Monday that it will return to a tripartite dialogue with management and the government after suspending participation five months ago. It said it has decided to accept the presidential office's request for its return to the Economic, Social and Labor Council under the top office, which could bode well for the government's workweek plan. Earlier, presidential spokesperson Idoon said the FKTU has long been a representative organization in the nation's labor community, holding a pillar of social dialogue, adding that the top office anticipates its prompt return to the dialogue for discussions on labor hour revisions and other issues. Yes, we'll also keep an eye on the political reaction to this decision uh, in the following days as well. Shifting to security issues now, the Defence Minister Shin Won-sik and the US Secretary of De- Defence Lloyd Austin held the Allies' annual security consultative meeting in Seoul on Monday and revised their Tailored Deterrence Strategy, or TDS, for the first time in 10 years. Can you explain what this document is and how it's different from the previous version? The TDS first drawn up in 2013 is an inter-ministerial strategy aimed at deterring the North's nuclear and weapons of mass destruction. The Allies assessed that it had to be revised to reflect Pyongyang's accelerated nuclear and missile advancements. Let's take a listen to what Defense Minister Shin Wan-shik and U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin had to say. The rocuous alliance now, based on the Washington Declaration announced by the Presidents of the Republic of Korea and the United States, will jointly plan and execute the ROC's conventional support to the U.S. nuclear operations. The extended deterrence will evolve into one that is executed together by the ROC and the U.S. Secretary Austin and I noted that we can never accept any nuclear attack. Our deterrence commitment to the ROK remains ironclad. That includes the full range of our nuclear, conventional, and missile defense capabilities. Today, during the security consultative meeting, Minister Shan and I discussed shared opportunities to strengthen the alliance even further. A government source reportedly explained that while the previous extended deterrence strategy is based upon the U.S. military's sole nuclear operation, the latest version allows for the joint planning and execution of a nuclear operation involving South Korea's conventional capabilities. And according to a joint statement by Minister Shin and Secretary Austin following the SEM, 
South Korea and the U.S. also agreed to share in real time the latter's early warning satellite information. Can you tell us more? The ministers agreed to pursue expanded cooperation of the U.S. shared early warning system to enhance the alliance's detection capabilities against the North advanced missile threats. Until now, Seoul has been unable to receive the warning data in real time. And what else did the defense minister say during the joint press conference? Shin said he and his American counterpart will not tolerate any type of nuclear attack by the North. He said the ministers confirmed that should Pyongyang resort to use of nuclear arms, it would face the Allies' immediate, overwhelming and decisive response leading to the end of the Kim Jong-un regime. Let's turn now to domestic political news. The ruling People Power Party has requested that the Constitutional Court review the legality of National Assembly Speaker Kim Jin-pyo's acceptance of the withdrawal of an impeachment bill against Korea Communications Commission Chair Lee Dong-wan. This comes after the Democratic Party withdrew its motion to impeach Lee and pledged to re-pursue his removal in the near future. Can you tell us the latest? The head of the PPP's legal support team, Representative Chun Jue, submitted the request for a ruling in a competence dispute on Monday morning, while also filing for an injunction to prevent the impeachment bill from being retabled during the National Assembly's regular session. Speaking to reporters after filing the petition, Chun said the act of accepting the withdrawal violated the right of PPP lawmakers to deliberate and vote at the plenary session, adding that the party is seeking to confirm that the Speaker's move was invalid. The DP, however, claims that the impeachment bill for E was simply reported and not submitted as an agenda item and therefore can be withdrawn and resubmitted in future plenary sessions. The PPP argues that the impeachment bill was virtually scrapped 72 hours after it was reported to the plenary session and cannot be submitted to the current National Assembly. And finally, can you give us an update on the bedbug situation which is starting to grip the nation? Yes, the Interior Ministry said on Monday that it will urgently provide financial support to local governments fighting the spread of bedbugs. The ministry said it was allocating 2.2 billion won, or over 1.6 million U.S. dollars in special tax grants for municipalities to purchase pesticides as they conduct their four-week-long intensive inspection and control period. Support for pest control will be strengthened in vulnerable areas like guest houses and off-campus dorms. The government's joint response team on bedbugs also plans to introduce effective insecticides during the intensive inspection and control period while providing information to the public. Yes, we'll be talking more about this next for our in-depth today. But for now, we wrap up our news briefing here. In Young, thank you for bringing us those updates. Thank you. South Korea has been gripped by a bed bug outbreak and public anxiety is on the rise amid a slew of suspected sightings and bites pouring in from across the country. In response, the government launched a four-week campaign starting Monday to carry out inspections and implement pest control measures at public facilities such as bathhouses, dormitories and childcare facilities. But concerns remain over a wider outbreak get some expert analysis on the pests and what can be done to control them. We're joined on the line now by Dr. Richard Naylor, entomologist and director at the Bed Bug Foundation, a non-profit organisation in the UK dedicated to raising standards for the detection and management of bed bugs. Dr. Naylor, hello and thank you for your time today. Hello, thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Can we start with the basics? Can you explain for us what bed bugs are and where they're usually found? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, so bed bugs are really bat bugs. The, the, uh, they've evolved over millions of years in caves with bats. And probably 20,000 years ago, while people were still living in caves, some of these bugs moved off the bats and onto people and followed us out into civilization. So there have been, these bugs have been living with people uh, for as long as people have been around. It's not a new problem. Right, so it's not a new problem. Uh, where are they usually found? They're called bed bugs, but is it usually beds yeah. that they're found here in uh, civilization? Well, that's right. When they're, when they're feeding on people, they do normally live in beds. They, they mostly move around at night, and they come and find you in your bed, and they feed, and then they go and look for somewhere to hide close to where they fed so that they've got a reliable source of food to come back to. So they're normally less than half a metre from where they were able to bite you, which for most, most cases is in the bed structure, but it might be in a big armchair or a sofa if that's where people spend you know, hours, hours uh, sleeping or resting. I see. So they're usually found in beds. But uh, how do they get there? What leads to uh, bed bug infestations? How do they spread? Sure. You, you, could, um, you could bring one home with you on your, usually on your baggage from a holiday. Or, or perhaps you live in an apartment building and they're somewhere else in the building and they're migrating into your, uh, into your apartment. Once they find their way in there, uh, they they wait till it's dark and and you're sleeping in your bed and they detect your uh, carbon dioxide from your breath and your body heat and they w- gradually home in on where you are and climb up the bed leg uh, and then settle in your bed um, and from there uh, an adult female might lay 25 eggs a week or something like that and feed about once a week and so the population is fairly slow to get started but um, but within about six weeks those first eggs have matured into adults and then the population gets uh, grows much more rapidly. Right, I see. And it seems to be the case uh, with Korea currently that the bedbugs are suspected to have been uh, carried on from someone's uh, person from overseas. Uh, As you said, that's perhaps uh, a likely source, uh, perhaps France or the UK at the moment, considering the outbreaks that they've had there this year. Uh, That is speculation for now. But in any case, uh, they have found their way to Korea now and they've been spotted in various regions across the country. In Seoul, a city official said today that so far there have been about 20 confirmed cases. Now, one of the main ways to know if there are bedbugs, I understand, is if you've been bitten by them, essentially. So recognising what bedbugs look like is important. With that in mind, Dr Naylor, what are the symptoms of bedbug bites and what do they look like? Uh, so, so people react differently. Uh, some people get a very strong itchy red reaction and it might take two, two weeks to go away. Uh, and other people get no reaction at all. Something like 30% of people don't get any reaction. And some people only get a reaction after they've had multiple exposures, multiple bites over multiple weeks to gradually build up a response. Um, so it can be quite variable. And that's part of the problem with trying to diagnose it, really. And it, it can look quite similar to, say, a mosquito bite. Um, and, and like mosquitoes, they'll tend to bite those exposed areas of skin. Um, so it can be difficult to figure out if it really is bed bugs that you have. Um, but but one, one of the key things to look for with bed bugs is that they're very messy. They, they, they're drinking this blood and then excreting this liquid kind of black feces. And this soaks into the bed sheets and leaves inky black spots everywhere. And that's often the first sign you see that's good, like conclusive evidence of bed bugs. I see. So they're similar to uh, mosquito bites. Are they hard to discern? I, I've heard in Korea that uh, they, they sometimes uh, bite several times in local, localised areas of the body rather than a single bite. 
Uh, that could be the case. So they're just searching for a capillary so they can they can walk up and uh, attempt to feed in a location. And then if they don't if they don't get a good source of blood there, they'll they'll move perhaps a centimeter and try again. And they might do that two or three times. And so in in the morning you wake up and you've got three bites in a row. But it was just this one bug searching for a good location to to get some blood. Right. So uh, along with that, uh, inky spots on the bed, as you said, is another way to detect them. That leads me to uh, another question. What health risks do bed bugs pose? Do they carry or spread diseases? There's very little evidence for bed bugs spreading diseases. There's some uh, some theoretical, uh, some sort of lab-based studies with mice that have shown that they can transmit Chagas disease. But uh, the probability of this happening uh, in the real-world situation is very low. Um, Really, the bigger problem with bed bugs is that it's uh, the mental health impact. It can uh, it can cause people to become very isolated. They can feel shame and guilt for uh, believing that it's associated with poor living standards. Uh, that they stop their friends coming to see them because they don't want to, them to bring bed bugs away, and so they, they become isolated and they uh, and they become sleep deprived because they become fearful of going to bed and knowing something's going to come out and feed on them. And this combination of um, making people sleep deprived and isolated, it, it can be really devastating, uh, causing yeah, men- mental health problems. Uh, yeah. Right. So uh, while at least bed bugs do not spread disease, they are uh, extremely irritating and make our lives severely more difficult. And that can lead to uh, mental uh, health impact as well. So that is a concern here, of course. Uh, I, as I said, the um, bed bugs, uh, bed Bug bites are also the main way to recognise if there might be an infestation. Uh, you also said uh, blacky spots on the bed. Is there any other ways of identifying whether there might be uh, a bed bug infestation in our homes? I mean, you c- you can just look for them. So uh, if you if you take a good flashlight and then uh, uh, you'd need to take the bedding off the bed carefully to make sure you don't flick any anywhere, and then and then lift the mattress off the bed and search around the underside of the mattress. And you're looking for an insect that's about the size of an apple seed. So it's not, it's not invisible, but it's good at uh, squeezing into little cracks and crevices. So you need to check all the little cracks and crevices, like around the ends of the bed slats and in any countersunk screw holes, uh, anywhere where a little bug like that could hide. And they like to aggregate. They produce an aggregation pheromone so that they can hide together. So you'll often find 10 or 20 or maybe 50 even hiding in one big cluster in one place. So it's not, it's not difficult to find these hiding places. You just need to carefully go over your bed with a, a torch looking in all the cracks and crevices. Right, so you can spot them. Uh, they are visible uh, by eye, but you need to make sure that you're checking all the cracks and crevices. Understand that they can get into the cracks and crevices of walls, of furniture and floors uh, as well. So uh, Korea is in the early stages of a bed bug infestation. The first sighting was made in Incheon last month in a sauna facility. And while authorities are saying it's not at a level to start panicking yet, there are, they are going all out to try and nip the situation in the bud after seeing the situations escalate in France and the UK. On that note, can you fill us in on the situation in the UK currently? How serious is it at the moment? And were bedbugs common before this year? Um, so in, in the 1930s, they were very, very much more common. There were reports that every house in London had bedbugs. So re- relative to this, the situation now is, is nothing. We're, we're a fraction of that. Um, but from, from about the end of the 90s, um, bedbugs started increasing. Uh, and between about 2005 and 2018, 
they were increasing more rapidly. Uh, and then and then COVID-19 happened, and actually that knocked them back because that stopped the movement of people, uh, and it um, uh, shut down the hospitality sector. And so bedbugs couldn't move around so much. They couldn't spread so easily, uh, and their numbers really reduced. And now we're seeing like a secondary increase, but perhaps we're not even back to where we were in 2018. Um, but it's cer- cer- certainly increasing, and we can expect it to keep on doing that. Yeah. Uh, what measures has the UK government taken uh, so far to tackle the current uh, bed bug uh, problem? I, I'm not aware of uh, specific measures that the government's taken recently. There were, uh, when, when it was more serious in the uh, in the 30s, they brought it, there were laws that uh, defined uh, land, made it the responsibility of landlords to uh, make sure uh, premises were free from vermin and that kind of thing. They brought in a few different. Uh, uh, legislations uh, and, and introduced the um, insecticides that were very effective. Um, but have, uh, right now, I think we're at very, very much lower levels. I think the media makes it very uh, gives a, um, a disproportionate uh, uh, idea of how many bugs there are right. at the moment in the UK. Yeah, I see. But you, you, you did say there was a, a resurgence, though, right? Where uh, where has this resurgence come from? It, it's probably the combination of a few factors. Uh, certainly, resistance to some of the main insecticides that we have, like the, the pyrethroids, are now one of the only remaining classes of insecticides that we have in the UK, and so they're very widely used. And because of that, bed, bug, bed bugs are very resistant to them because they encounter them a lot. So it, it constantly selects out the weakest ones, uh, and you just get uh, very resistant bed bugs um, that can easily live on dry surfaces coated with these pyrethroid insecticides. We don't have many other options to switch to now. Um, and so that's part of it. But, but bedbugs thrive wherever people live close together because it makes it easy for them to spread. Uh, they, they, they do particularly well when it's warm. So a nice warm building, which is you know, heated well in the winter, um, allows them to reproduce all year. Um, hmm. Lots of movement of people helps them. That, that's their main dispersal mechanism. So lot, places where lots of people move, like uh, subways or you know, railway stations or aircraft, Lots of people moving through particular areas helps to move them around, that kind of thing. So multiple factors helping them to spread in different situations. I see. So then what have you made of the situation here in Korea and the way the authorities are trying to tackle this situation? Local governments are exerting exhaustive efforts to try and prevent further infestations, conducting inspections as well as fumigations. Uh, Information booklets are being provided and a call centre to receive related complaints has even been opened. Uh, Korea does have a history of uh, bedbugs as well. In the 1960s, uh, it was uh, quite uh, prevalent. And in the 70s, Korea used uh, dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane or DDT, an insecticide to help eradicate the bed bugs then, but that insecticide is now banned. So instead, the state-run National Institute of Environmental Research uh, has approved eight different pesticides. Uh, uh, if I can get the pronunciation right, uh, neonicotinide type dinotefurin. Uh, pesticides, saying that uh, the pyrethroid insecticide, which you mentioned earlier, they've become uh, uh, they've uh, the bed bugs have grown resistant to that type of insecticide. So, will these new insecticides and pesticides be effective? And what advice do you have to authorities here in South Korea? 
Yes, certainly. I mean, I, I think what they're doing is, is great. L- lots of good, good advice. They're doing lots of good things there towards controlling bedbugs. The spread of information, telling people what to do is very important. Uh, and yes, switching to new insecticides will be effective, but it's, it's only ever going to be a short-term measure because bedbugs are very good at evolving resistance to these kinds of things. Um, you, you tend, when, when you apply insecticides, you, you tend to knock out most of them, and those last few remaining ones are the, the ones with the, the highest levels of resistance, and they run off next door or climb up to the apartment upstairs and start a new infestation where they're all just a little bit more resistant to this particular um, uh, insecticide. And there were even reports of um, uh, resistance to, the, to DDT before it was banned. So it, it wasn't even so much that DDT was banned, and that's why they came back. They were already resistant to it at the point where it was banned. So they're just very good at evolving resistance to these kinds of insecticides. And it's very difficult to develop insecticides that are very toxic to insects but completely safe to mammals because we're not that different. Uh, and so it's, it's certainly a big challenge to find new products that are yes, safe for us but dangerous for them and then, and then also products that they can't then evolve resistance to very quickly. So it's a big challenge, yeah. Right, so then does it start by... Uh does it start in our homes? Do we have to tackle it ourselves uh, to a certain extent? So if we find bed bugs in our homes, what do we do? Uh, yes, you can certainly start. You can start at home. You have to be careful uh, not to make it worse. If you buy, like, uh, weak insecticides, fly spray from, I, I don't know what the situation is there in South Korea, but we, we can go to our local uh, local shop and buy a can of insecticide, but it's much weaker than the professionals are allowed to use. And there's a danger when you spray these in, in, uh, at clusters of bed bugs. It, it doesn't kill them, but it disperses them. And then, you, and then you spread them more rapidly. Then they run off to the neighbours uh, and uh, spread through the building more quickly. So you have to be careful to do it. Uh, you have to do it very thoroughly. You, could, you don't have to use insecticide. People use heat and they use steam. They use a, a dust called uh, diatomaceous earth, which is a, um, a dust milled out of the ground and... Um, uh, and it's very effective as a, an insecticide as well. Um, and so there's different there's, there's different things you can use. It, the, the design of bed is very uh, is very important for bed bugs. Something like a metal frame bed is very difficult for them to climb into because they can't climb shiny surfaces. And it's very easy for you to check. You can turn it over and have a look around very easily. But but some some beds are more like a big hollow box, and bugs can get right inside them. And then you, they're very difficult to find in there. And they've got this kind of easy access to a, to a great hiding place, which makes it much, much more difficult to find them and control them. Right. And finally, there was some advice as well given that we should vacuum up the, the bed bugs and then uh, destroy uh, the, the contents of the vacuum. Uh, would that work? Yeah, that's, that's good, for, particularly in a heavy infestation. That's great for getting the numbers down quickly. Uh, and, and as you say, you have to then be uh, careful of if it's a... If it's a bagless one, you can go and empty, probably empty it into a bag and tie it up. You don't want to, you don't want it to spread from wherever you dispose of your rubbish. Um, uh, but yeah, vacuuming is good. You have to be aware that they stick their eggs onto surfaces. So their eggs are about one millimetre long and they glue them into the cracks and crevices and, you, and a vacuum cleaner won't be able to take these off. But it, it certainly helps to stop spreading them if you can suck up all the, the adults and then worry about those eggs, uh, which, which you could tackle with uh, heat or steam or crushing them. But yeah but don't forget them. Um, it's all about being very thorough. You might need to dismantle your whole bed and just carefully go over each piece, um, cleaning off anything that's there. Yeah. 
Okay, we'll have to leave it there, but hopefully uh, Korea can get a hold of this situation uh, as well. Uh, We've been speaking to Dr. Richard Naylor from the Bedbug Foundation. Thank you once again for your time today. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index shed 5.9 points, or 0.24%, on Monday to close the day at 2,403.76. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell, losing 14.89 points, or 1.89%, to close at 774.42. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 8.3 won against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,325.11. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We continue on now to our daily segment, Korea Trending, where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now, Diane Yu, one of our contributors for this segment. Diane, hello. It's great to see you. Hello, Jango. Let's get into our first story. I understand that it revolves around a very tragic incident. Mm -hmm. So camping has become one of the most popular leisure activities in South Korea post-COVID-19 pandemic. However, it can come with many different potential dangers. As the weather gets colder and more and more people start to turn on heaters inside their tents, the number of carbon monoxide accidents has been on the rise. And tragically, according to the police, a middle-aged couple and their five-year-old grandson who were camping in Yeongdong, North Chungcheong province, were found dead on Sunday. Authorities believe that it was due to carbon monoxide poisoning. Yes, that is truly heartbreaking. How did the police find the family? They were first found by one of the staff members at the camping site who went to notify them that they had missed the checkout time. According to the staff, when he opened the tent, he saw that everyone had collapsed. After calling the emergency services number 119 for help, he performed CPR and mouth-to-mouth to try to save the child first, but they unfortunately had already passed away. Inside the tent, traces of a fire being lit in a brazier were found, and based on that, police estimate that the cause of death was carbon monoxide poisoning. Sadly, this is not the first time we've seen this kind of accident, even this year, right? Mm-hmm. Previously, a couple in their 50s was found dead inside a tent at a camping site in Yeoju, Gyeonggi province. Carbon monoxide poisoning is also believed to be the cause of death. So how should we protect ourselves from carbon monoxide poisoning? Mm. First, we have to keep in mind that carbon monoxide is colorless and orderless, so it's hard to notice with our naked eye. However, it's essential for us to know the dangers as per prolonged exposure can cause death. For this reason, uh, experts say that you should never light a fire or use gas-based heating appliances in a poorly ventilated tent. People should keep in mind to use things that may generate carbon monoxide outside the tent and use a carbon monoxide detector. Yes, we understand that people are tempted to light fires or use these sorts of appliances in their tents because it is getting so cold Mm -hmm. in Korea right now. But it's essential to at least to be on guard or avoid their use altogether and maybe uh, consider camping again when warmer uh, temperature returns as well. But in any case, please do be safe out there anywhere Mm -hmm. where listeners might be considering camping. Mm. 
OK, let's continue on to our next story. What do you have for us? Recently, there was an online debate over who should be the one to wipe the table after finishing a meal in restaurants. Until now, it was up to the owner of the restaurant, but there was a picture posted online showing a note stuck to a box of wet tissues that read, please keep your manners for the next customer. The note was clearly telling customers to clean the tables themselves. Right, I see. That does seem unusual. You said the picture has caused a debate online as well. What's been the response from the online community? Most comments showed animosity towards the note. They commented with a sarcastic tone saying, it seems like we'll have to do the dishes next time. People were saying that the restaurant was blatantly putting pressure on the customers to do the work that employees should be doing. Right. However, some are arguing that if the restaurant is being run by one person without any other employees, that note is understandable. Right. If the restaurant only has the chef inside the kitchen without anyone working out front, people are saying that it's reasonable for them to ask. In fact, the number of restaurants where customers order and pay through kiosks has been on the rise recently due to increasing labor costs and food ingredient prices. The number of kiosks operated in the food service industry, such as restaurants and cafes, reached approximately 87,000 last year, a nearly 16-fold increase in three years. So this debate could become more common in the near future if the number of kiosks continues to rise. Right. I think it can be understandable during busy periods like lunch hour where Mm -hmm. people might be waiting uh, in line for a table to come free. If the previous customer makes an effort to clean up after themselves, then the next customer could use it right away. It's that sort of scenario I think uh, the owner would be thinking of. But Mm -hmm. There are sanitary concerns as well, though. It's an interesting debate, uh, but we'll see if it does become a more common practice as well, Mm. as you said. Okay, let's continue on to our last story. What do you have for us? Would you believe me if I told you that quitting school is becoming a more popular choice these days among teenagers in Korea? Hmm. Call me old-fashioned, but it's something that's (laughs) unimaginable to think of, not having to go to school. However, video content created by teens who quit school is gaining popularity among their peers these days. Yes, that is surprising, actually. What Mm. are these videos about exactly? In addition to daily live video blogs following those who dropped out of school, there are various types of content, such as videos of teens telling their parents that they will drop out, videos capturing the last day of school, and more. For example, 18-year-old Park Junah's channel reveals her daily life since she dropped out of high school in June last year. Her videos include grading, qualification exam scores, college entrance exam preparation, homemaking videos, and advice to those who are considering following the same path as she did. Students who are thinking about quitting school get tips from these videos and even ask questions regarding the process and what it's really like to be out of school and be on your own. That's interesting. Even though she has quit school, she's still preparing for college entrance exams mm-hmm. then as well. So she's doing it outside of the school system. Right. Interesting. It's, uh, it's not just that teenagers are enjoying watching this content as well, but the actual number of dropouts has been on the rise as well, right? Mm-hmm, that's right. South Korea has been continuously seeing the actual dropout rate rise. According to the results of the 2023 Basic Education Statistics published by the Ministry of Education and the Korea Educational Development Institute, the dropout rate of elementary, middle, and high school students last year was 1% of the total number of students. That's
that's around a 40,000 increase compared to the year before. In particular, high school dropouts have steadily increased for the uh, three consecutive years, 1.1% in 2020, 1.5% in 2021, and 1.9% in 2022. Mm, what's behind this trend? What have experts been saying? Om Moon Young, a professor of education at Seoul National University, says that the trend is getting bigger as teenagers currently feel less need for school than before as they went through the COVID-19 pandemic. He also explained that the MZ generation's values, such as you don't have to follow the path others take, have influenced the increase in dropouts. However, some are concerned that just because the perception of dropping out has changed, young students should not easily decide whether to take that path by only watching videos on social media as those contents only show one side of the story. Right. I imagine that there would be quite a few difficulties and challenges as well. Of course. It's a fascinating trend and Mm. we'll see if it is one that continues to grow as well. That's where we'll leave it for today's Career Trending. Thank you for those stories, Diane, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Time now to get the latest sporting results, headlines and stories. It's our weekly segment, Monday Sports Roundup. And with the updates, it's the one and only Yuji Ho, sports reporter for the Yanap News Agency. He joins us on the line now. Ji hello. It's uh, good to talk to you again. Yeah, it's great to be here. There's only one place to start this week, and that is baseball. Because the LG Twins are on the verge of winning their first Korean series since 1994. They have a 3-1 series lead over the KT Wiz heading into Game 5. And it has already started, actually, as we speak. One more win, and they will get to celebrate their first championship in 29 years. So, Jio, let's talk about this potential clinching game. Yeah, so the LG Twins lost the first game against the KT Wiz 3-2 last week, and then reeled off three consecutive wins to now move within a victory of the long-awaited title. Now, you know, 29 years, if you think about some of the other droughts in North American sports or other European sports, they may not seem very long. But, you know, if you consider the fact that KBO launched in 1982, it's been, it's been around for 41 years now. So 29 years not winning a title, uh, you know, that's a pretty long drought especially for this uh, passionate fan base of the Twins. Mm. Uh, their bats have been really explosive. Eight home runs in the past three games. Uh, six at the, I guess, the smallish KT Wiz Park in Suwon on the road. But now they're back at bigger Jamshil Baseball Stadium in Seoul for the final three games if they do get to the point uh, from Monday to Wednesday. And they're obviously hoping to finish the job Monday night. A rematch of the starting pitchers from game, game one. We've got Casey Kelly for the Twins and Ko Young Pyo uh, for, for, uh, for, the, for the Wiz. And neither pitcher got a decision back then in game one, but uh, pitched the six, six innings, six plus innings, giving up a couple of runs, very solid. And now I mentioned the uh, Twins being a really popular team. Uh, you know, 90% of the fans at home are Twins fans, basically, and about 80% of the fans on the road are their supporters. So wow. they've been getting a ton of support at home and on the road. Uh, and clinching a title on a home, on a home turf, they, they're going to get a chance to do it this week. Uh, it would cause a pandemonium uh, around this area for sure. Indeed, I imagine it would. But they do need to get past KT Wiz one last time. History is very much stacked against the KT Wiz, right? They need stri- three straight wins now. What's mm-hmm. it going to take for them to be able to do that? 
Yeah, I mean, speaking of history, there have been 16 times when a team took a three games to one lead in the Korean series. Uh, we're not counting the ties in 1982, the first game. And the, the team that had the 3-1 lead went on to win the championship 15 out of 16 times. The only exception has been the uh, 2013 Samsung Lions. They came back from that deficit to defeat the Doosan Bears in seven games to win the title uh, 10 years ago. Uh, but, you know, if the Warriors can pull off a win Monday, they can make things really, really interesting because they've got two, their two best starting pitchers lined up in William Cuevas and Wes Benjamin for the next two games. Mm. And uh, the Twins, they used the seven relief pitchers in game two and game three. And those are the seven key guys who are called upon uh, when, they have, when they have the lead and when they try to protect the lead. And they mostly got a day off on Saturday when the Twins won 15-4. to four. Uh, They didn't really you know, get much work then. And the travel day Sunday as well. So two, essentially two days off for those uh, bullpen guys. So they're going to be locked and loaded tonight. Uh, uh, try to you know deliver the championship with the Twins and not go not have to go Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, so you know they're going to be asked once again to pitch in uh, high leverage situations on Game Six if they do go that if they do go that far. But uh, again, ideally they want to finish it Monday night. But the Warriors, you know, they've got the better starting pitching depth, uh, but much less bullpen depth. So Koryong Pio has to go as deep as he can on Monday. And uh, Cuevas and Benjamin, they're going to be ready to pitch uh, if they can somehow push it, push it to the business. Yes, it's going to be an uphill struggle, to say the least. But all they can do is go one game at a time. Uh, we'll know in a couple of hours whether they are on the road to a miracle comeback or if it will end up being the fairy tale finish for the long-suffering LG Twins fans. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see. OK, let's move on to football now, where we had our first so-called Korean derby of this Premier League season on Saturday. It was billed that because Son Heung-min's Tottenham Hotspur were taking on Hwang Yi-chan's Wolverhampton Wanderers. And both players have been on hot form as well. Unfortunately, neither player scored on Saturday, but Huang got the last laugh as Wolves rallied for a dramatic 2-1 victory at home. Jiho, can you sum it up for us? Yeah, it was a much-anticipated showdown between, the, I guess, the only two Korean players in the Premier League this year. And the two Korean stars that are off to a really great start this season. Uh, Sony has eight goals. He's second in the league, scoring behind Erling Haaland of uh, Man City. And Huang has six goals. That's already a career high for him in the Premier League. But like we said, uh, neither player found the back of the net in this one. But, uh, you know, they ended up playing the full 90 minutes. Uh, gave the Korean fans watching from home uh, a lot to, uh, I guess, to cheer about uh, in that sense. Wolves scored two goals in during added time for a 2-1 to one win uh, and handed the Spurs their first two-match losing streak of the season. You know, they've gone undefeated in the first 10 matches. Now they've dropped the last two after going eight wins and two draws to begin the campaign. Uh, Spurs are dealing with a few injuries here and there, and a couple of guys got ejected. And uh, that puts a lot of, uh, I guess, pressure on the shoulders of the captain, uh, Son Heung-min. Uh, he has to really you know, step up big time, even though he's already done a lot, uh, a lot of his share to carry this team to this, to this point. Now, shortly after that match, the two players hopped on a plane to return to Korea as teammates this time for the South Korean national team. They were, in fact, on the same plane. Uh, they are back to face Singapore and then China for the first two matches of the second round in the Asian World Cup qualifying tournament. Jiho, can you preview, preview those matches for us? 
Yeah, sure. Well, first up will be Singapore. Uh, we'll be at the 8 p.m. Thursday, Seoul World Cup Stadium. Uh, that's the first Group C match for these two teams. And then Korea will travel to Shenzhen, China, to play China on November 21st. That's Tuesday next week, 9 p.m. kickoff in Korean time. Uh, on paper, you're looking at these uh, you know, ranking positions. Uh, Korea, the top-ranked team in the Group C. These should be easy matches for Korea as they open the second round. Uh, but Jurgen Klinsmann, the head coach for Korea, had a uh, press conference earlier Monday. He said there are no t- such a thing as an easy match uh, at you know, any, any competition. Uh, he's going to take these two matches very seriously. Now, 36 nations have been divided into nine groups of four in the second round. The top two teams from each group will move on to the third round, where they will be paired into three groups of, groups of six. And from there, the top two teams from each group will punch the tickets to 2026 World Cup. It will be co-hosted by the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. And uh, this is going to be the first edition of the World Cup with 48 nations, up from current 32. Mm. So more uh, quarters available out of Asia. Uh, you know, Korea having played every World Cup since 1986, most likely the streak will be, the streak will be extended uh, into the 2026 tournament. But again, uh, Klinsman not taking an edge for granted, uh, not taking anybody lightly. Uh, uh, as also Korea is gearing up for the Asian Cup you know, in January in Qatar. Uh, he's using these matches as uh, important parts of the preparation. In the meantime, that's all for today's Roundup. Jiho, thank you for those updates. Enjoy the rest of the Korean Series game today and we'll catch up with you next week. OK, thanks for having me today. Hello, this is Tiger JK of Drunken Tiger. You are now listening to Korea 24. It's time for our closing segment now, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, we have joining us in the studio, Richard Larkin, our staff editor. Richard, hello. It's great to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. Okay. So what's the first article that you have for us today? Do you remember back in June, we talked about Korea's first robot conductor. It was used during a concert which had a human conductor, then a robot conductor, and then had them both working together. Yes, I do remember that. That was the week, essentially, it seemed, (laughs) where every story was about robots taking over the world. It was. I remember that vividly as well. But yeah, well, it seems like since that story came out in the newspapers, the National Orchestra of Korea has been trying to experiment with other types of technology to attract audience members and to push the boundaries of what people call traditional music. That's what Huan Dongyi's article in the culture section of the Korea Herald is about. Yes, having a robot conductor did certainly attract interest. But if I remember correctly, it was felt at the time that the robot lacked something that the human counterpart had so that we were still some type away from seeing that technology advancing possibly. Mm. So uh, what's this other avenue the National Orchestra, Orchestra has been exploring? VR or virtual reality. So the project is split into two parts. So let me go through the first part first. Okay. The National Orchestra of Korea will hold an exhibition on November 23rd and 24th at the Hanel Round Theatre. During this exhibition, each visitor will enter the theatre in 10-minute intervals, wearing their VR headsets and headphones. 
They will walk through the concert hall and then sit on the stage. On the outside, nothing is happening, but on the inside, the visitors will be watching their own private concert. Mm. It sounds pretty fun, but the exhibition is very limited. Only 40 people each day can experience this from 1pm to 9.40pm. I see. Uh, you mentioned that the project is split into two parts, though. Yes. What, so what's the second part? Well, the second part is a concert that will be held on November 26th at the same theatre. So it seems like it is similar to the exhibition, but you are not alone. You'll have uh, many people around you and you are able to experience the live concert as if you are on the stage. I see. OK, so that's interesting. I guess the advantage is when you go to a classical music concert, sometimes you might have seating that's really far away from the right. stage. So you, you can hear the music, but you might might not be able to see the intricacies of the performances of the performance. And sure, and if you're sitting down, if you're a bit smaller than other people, especially the person in front of you, <laughs> right, exactly. you might not be able to have a clear view. So I guess this would be a, a way to overcome that ob- obstacle as well. Right, and give a different experience of really seeing the performers up close. Sure. I think that is an interesting idea. We'll see uh, if there are any drawbacks once the uh, concert does take place. Mm. Uh, let's continue. What's the next article that you have for us? It is Jung Dae-hyun's article in the national section of the Korea Times. It's about how the Seoul Metropolitan Government is now accepting public recommendations for representatives who will take part in the upcoming New Year's Eve bell tolling ceremony. It's the first time in four years that the city is going through the recommendation process because, as we all know, there was a single COVID-19 pandemic (laughs) around. But yeah, the process will be open until December 8th. Right, so the bell we're talking about, of course, is the Pochingak bell, which yes. uh, can be found in central Seoul. It's possible that uh, our listeners will have seen uh, seen it on New Year's Eve celebrations. Uh, several public representatives and officials uh, ring the bell 33 times mm. with a kangmok, which is a, a kind of a wooden pole. Right, yeah. This tradition has been going on since 1953, and over 100,000 people go to watch the event in person each year. This online recommendation process, though, has only been in effect since uh, 2005. But unfortunately, because of the pandemic, the process was stopped from 2020. The city picked the members of the public themselves. But as you said, they are looking for representatives this year. Is there some sort of criteria for someone to be chosen? So the city government says those who have overcome adversity, quietly influenced society, practiced sharing and service in challenging circumstances, inspired hope and courage through their work in various societal fields, or enhanced national prestige on the international stage can be chosen. Mm. In the past, representatives included Lee Soo-jung, a forensic psychology professor, Lee Guk-jong, a uh, professor at Aju University Hospital's Severe Trauma Centre, and Pengsu, the popular penguin character. <laughs> right, of course, yes. Oh, oh and last year, Che Young-jin, who had cleared obstacles and drilled drains during the monsoon season's heavy rain to prevent accidents on the road, was chosen. This year, a total of six people will be selected. Right, so it'll be interesting to see who does get selected this year yes. and uh, what amazing work they've done as well. Mm. OK, we'll wrap up our Morning Edition preview segment there. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that wraps up our show for today. Do join us again tomorrow for more news, views and reviews from Korea. Till then, we hope you have a wonderful day. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye.